Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is the FT's retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and Capital Markets editor, Richard Milne. This week, we'll discuss HSBC's decision to award its chief executive £5.9 million in bonuses and longer-term incentives for 2011. They have the benefit of the emerging markets, which have been far stronger than Western economies in the last year. We'll also review last week's results among the UK banks. Interesting point, I thought, was a big increase in the staff costs that they're paying in Asia and particularly in, in Latin America, Brazil. And we'll examine the situation in Greece. Well, you've bought this magic thing of time and it just comes down to, is Europe going to use the time, however much it buys, to the right end? First to HSBC, Charlene. Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive, has got far bigger a bonus payout than any other bank CEO, as far as we know it anyway, in the UK. But I guess that looks fairly deserved given the results that they've put out and the progress that he's made towards his strategic plan. Well, they certainly think so. I mean, this morning they've unveiled pre-tax profits of about $17.7 billion. Now, that was actually a slight fall on last year when you strip out a big $4 billion gain on the value of its own credit, which is one of these factors that tends to distort bank results. And we tend to look beyond that. So that was slightly down. Um, Was that expected? I think that is pretty much in line. It's slightly weaker than some analysts had expected, but broadly in line with consensus. And, you know, including that gain on the own credit, they were up 15%. So what was driving down the profits? Well, I think like with all other banks, they've had a pretty tough year in the investment banking business. Profits there were down by a quarter. They've also had another tough year in the US where they're still cleaning up after their consumer finance business was ravaged by sort of subprime mortgage losses. They've started to see that improve a little little bit towards the end of the year, but still big charges there to absorb. So really, those two were offset by a very strong performance in their commercial bank, the largest ever profit there, a record of sort of over $7 billion. And of course, with HSBC, you know, they have the benefit of the emerging markets, which have been far stronger than Western economies in the last year. That'll be particularly encouraging for Stuart Gulliver, won't it? Because he's trying to reinvent HSBC really as a commercial bank far more than a retail bank. That's what he's been pulling back from in certain markets. And also last year, you know, he took significant charges in doing that. They pulled out of 19 different business lines in the last sort of 15 months. So he's trying to really weed out the weakest international businesses, those that aren't sort of up to scratch on a number of measures that he laid out last year. So that's pretty costly. That's eaten into profits as well. Interesting point, I thought, was a big increase in the staff costs that they're paying in Asia and particularly in, in in Latin America, Brazil, they paid an extra $1.1 billion to start to bring in new staff there. 
in 2011 and they have still been paying out a lot of money to people around the world they said this morning that 170 people earned more than a million dollars last year their total bonus pool was smaller than other UK banks it was about 1.2 billion dollars but then um, they've got a smaller but investment they've got a smaller bank. investment bank um, Mr Gulliver himself took almost 6 million which was less than he took in 2010 but of course he was head of the investment bank then so a smaller bonus as chief executive but still pretty generous longer term incentive One of the interesting things that they were pointing out on their call earlier was that they're very much focused on the balance that they want to create between payouts to staff, such as the chief executive, but also right across the board, as against the payouts in terms of capital boosting internally and dividend payments. And on that dividend front, they were bigging up the, I think it was a 14% increase. So I guess that is a message that was going to go down fairly well with shareholders. Yeah, for sure. I think they said that 50% of retained profits would go to boosting the capital. The others would be divided up, but it was, I think, the biggest dividend they've paid since 2007. So that will go down well. And they never quite get the kind of criticism that other banks do in terms of pay, I think, because a lot of it is based outside the UK. People appreciate the fact that they've got to pay a lot of money to get these bankers into their core markets in Asia, their fast-growing areas. And for Mr. Gulliver himself, they did recognise a couple of incidents in the UK. The big fine that HSBC incurred last year for mis-selling investment bonds to elderly customers. Now, this uh, created an enormous amount of outrage at the time. It hit every sort of sensitive issue going. And they said that because of that and also because of the provision it made for loan insurance, they would rein in his bonus and they actually awarded him zero for those kind of elements of the bonus. Just a quick word then to take us into the broader market we had HSBC was the last of the UK banks or the big four UK banks to report we had Barclays a couple of weeks ago now but last week we had Lloyds and Royal Bank of Scotland clearly those two part state-owned banks uh, fared far more weakly than HSBC basically loss making especially at a headline level are we seeing just a complete divide now do you think in the sector I think there is HSBC seem to be out there on their own really and that's largely because of their exposure outside the UK I mean only sort of less than 20 percent of their profits come from the UK now and you know they've had a tough time here as everyone else has but you look at someone like Lloyd's who's predominantly based here you know is incredibly tied to the fortunes of the UK economy and is having a much tougher time I mean the thing with RBS and Lloyd's this time around was both had much bigger provisions for PPI that was for Lloyd's the, the loan three, insurance issue yeah, yeah exactly for yeah. Lloyd's that was three billion for RBS that was about a billion, for a billion yeah. but even stripping those out they're having really a tough time both of them to pull back and show investors and show the market what their core businesses really look like you know I suppose you say HSBC's out there on their own I'm sure still chart would like to think that they're in the same category. They're a far less well-known bank in the UK, but a similar business, and we get their results later this week. So we're watching out for those. I just wanted to bring in Richard on one of the points that linked RBS and Lloyd's late last week. And as we reported in Monday's FT, those two banks between them expected to take 15 billion euros of funding under the European Central Bank's so-called LTRO facility. This three-year funding mechanism was super cheap money from the ECB, 1%, they have to pay for it. And uh, you kind of got to wonder why everybody's not taking vast sums. You do have to wonder in a sense, I guess it's a question of what you do with the money you see in various funding indicators that there's a lot of money sloshing around the system at the moment. A lot of the banks that took money last time haven't necessarily found a use for it. So where you're seeing it most obviously is perhaps among the Italian and Spanish banks who can find a home by parking it in 
their domestic debt and we've just had figures out I saw on the way down here that shows that the domestic holdings of Spanish and Italian debt have shot up in January. Um, Which is exactly what the policymakers were hoping for or many of them were hoping for that suddenly you facilitate these countries to issue more debt and you have well, ready buyers. It's backdoor QE I backdoor think really. And, of easing, yeah. and I think for the broader market that's what's been so amazingly powerful for it is that the ECB we never expected to do QE we understood the Fed and the Bank of England were going to do that and that's produced this surprise effect that I mean you look at a bank like Unicredit the last time I saw it since January the 9th its share price has doubled yes now it's still probably down for the year even but no that's, uh, that's absolutely right and I think you know it was this whole transaction which we saw the first phase of back in December nearly 500 billion of funding raised by the banks from the ECB and well all eyes are on Wednesday's second phase when well depending on who's right anywhere between 500 billion and a trillion is going to be raised I mean I think the key question though is at the moment when we're talking about RBS and Lloyds is why would UK banks be tapping this facility well I guess this might be one more for Charlene but UK banks do have reasonable exposure to Ireland in particular yeah and particularly for Lloyds they do have other troubled businesses in Europe which are not funded sufficiently by their deposits and so it makes sense for them to you know take this money to fund those loans across Europe in places such as Spain and Italy where they're having problems and, and as I said know, I suppose in the introduction if you can get money at one percent then why would you get it from anywhere else if you've got those uh, those assets to fund but you need to avoid having a crunch in three years that you're one of an enormous number of banks all having all your financing maturing at the well, same time. I, I suppose that's one of the things that policymakers will be pleased about is that one of the fears had been that you'd put so much artificial support in place that the normal markets would cease to operate and actually the reverse to a degree seems to have happened. We've had a lot more issuance from not just the top-rated banks, but also kind of middle-ranking well, banks. Well, you've had you've had Lloyd's issue, uh, yeah. Senior Unsecured, you had Intesa, San Paolo We've seen Italian well. banks and French banks, which when, had been troubled at the end of last year in terms of their ability to issue. And it might just be worth pointing out as well that HSBC this morning said that they were only going to draw $350 million from this round. They took over $5 billion in December, so a much, much smaller amount that they said they're just going to use in Spain and Italy where yes. they could do with a bit of extra funding. It would be interesting to see what happens to all the banks that played or they used the facility big time in December and what they do going forward. Because Lloyd's, for example, which didn't use it at all in December, we know is thinking about doing as much as £10 billion this time. So, well, and I think it will be also that? interesting to see how the market takes it. There had been an expectation that the bigger the number, the better, in a sense, because yeah. you'd be securing all these banks. But I think because of that dynamic of the HSBC v the Lloyds differences, yes. I think it's much harder to say whether it'll be perceived as good or bad. Well, I'm sure we'll be following up on that next week once we know the number, which is due on Wednesday. On to our final topic of the day, Greece, which we've obviously talked about many times in the podcast. But since last week, we have had quite a lot of developments, really. Bring, bring us up to date, Richard, on exactly... <laughs> where we are on this famous bondholder exchange. It's virtually the world's most tortuous story, isn't it? One step forward every uh, six months. In a sense, this is what we've been talking about since July. The story hasn't changed. The numbers have changed a little bit. Greece's problems have got worse. It's about a supposedly voluntary debt swap under which the private holders of Greek bonds will take a, a haircut of about 
75% and Greece gets debt relief of about 50%. It works out at about 100 billion euros. So, I mean, because it's they're actually... paying less on their less uh, interest on those debts as well. Yes. Yeah. In theory, this is a momentous event. It's one of the biggest and most complex restructurings that we've ever gone through. It's the first quasi-default that will happen in the Eurozone. We don't, I mean, last week in RBS's results, they said they'd taken a billion pound hit on their exposure to Greece over yes. the year. And there was just quite a funny anecdote. Someone close to the bank said when we were asking whether how voluntary that was, they said it was about as voluntary as Stephen Hester, their chief executive, waving his bonus. So, yes. <laughs> um, that kind of summed it up for us, I think, in terms of whether, you know, the banks were really given any choice in this. Absolutely right. And we did, of course, see banks across Europe. I think most of them came on one day last week, Thursday last week, when we had banks, including Commerce Bank and Dexia and Credit Agricole as well, all taking the these massive hits to basically mark down their remaining Greek investments. But it's probably not going to be the end, we should well, say. <laughs> um, I'm sure our listeners will be delighted to hear that. Without wanting to preempt it, the new bonds that the banks will and other investors will receive, most people expect them to trade at about 40 to 50% apart, which suggests another restructuring default. Yes, will take place at some stage because, I mean, even in the sunny scenario, Greece's debt to GDP is going to end up at 120% and frankly, nobody believes that. And even that looks unsustainable for most observers. One, one key thing that's always puzzled me on this is a lot of the reason for trying to get a voluntary deal was to, from the policymaker point of view, avoid triggering the insurance that backs up these bonds, the so-called CDS. But everyone's talking now that uh, the way this deal has been structured in, ultimately is almost certain to trigger that's those CDS payouts. What's the point of doing it in the first place? I think one thing to say is that the situation has just deteriorated so rapidly that it's become essential now that all bonds are included. Whereas before, when we started this, we were looking only at bonds up to 2020. We probably weren't looking at the foreign law bonds because they were more difficult to do. We yes. only wanted so 75% or something. Whereas now they need everything. They need every single private bond that's out there. And because not everybody is voluntarily going to participate, they've well, had to change the law to make to compel everybody that doesn't volunteer. Exactly. But why they still want the fiction of it being as voluntary as Stephen Hester's waving of the bonus or Comets Bank's uh, the Spanish Inquisition, perhaps even less voluntary, is that not everybody is taking part. And the big absentee is the ECB itself, which has bought about 45 billion euros worth of bonds and it in this has cut a side deal and completely avoided the swap and in essence for the actual for the bond markets the stuff i'm looking at all the time this is a huge negative because you've just created this new sort of super senior player in your markets uh, namely the ecb and of course that you know on top of that you've got the 110 billion of or 100 billion original loan from the European governments and IMF. I mean, this is probably when you come to the second restructuring, you're going to have to start looking at those holdings. But what's been achieved by this structure is you've been able to divide and rule in terms of the different types of bondholders, which is what the ECB was desperate to achieve. Divide and rule, and then probably looking at the LTRO as well, you've bought this magic thing of time and it just comes down to, is Europe going to use the time, however much it buys, to the right end? Well, what does the precedent suggest? I don't know. That's it for this week, sadly. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Richard for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Amy Tsang. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.